The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This was the planet Mars as my crew and I first saw it. Dangerous, treacherous, alive with something we came to know only as death. This was what we faced when our spaceship cracked up and landing just six months ago. In January of this year, 1973. But it seems as if six centuries passed before a rescue ship arrived. For today, of all my crew, I, Colonel Edward Carruthers of the United States Space Command, am the only one alive. Now I will be going back to face my superiors on Earth, in Washington. And perhaps there, too, I will find another kind of death. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 19th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting worldwide and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Yes, Washington certainly would be a place to fear various kinds of deaths, but not the kind you'd usually associate with dying on the planet Mars. Our opener from today came from the 1958 movie, It, the Terror from Beyond Space. To help me introduce my particular theme today, Robert, I thought I'd take a slice out of our arts and entertainment files today in the latter half of the show. And I plan to, well, personally recommend and maybe even pan a few of my favorite science fiction movie classics of the 50s era. Um, I was either not yet born or far too young to have enjoyed many of these films on their first outings, but certainly did catch up on a few of them as they circulated in the years following their releases. Many of these movies still have something valid to say about our culture today and attitudes in 2016, and likely for long into the future. But mostly, they're just a lot of fun, and I think we'll talk about that in the second half of the show, Robert. I know you have a have a subject for us to kick off the show with. Yeah, I'm looking forward to your subject, Bob. I'm a big size five buff myself, so I, I'm looking forward to what you have to say, but I'm not talking about dying on Mars. I'm talking <laughs> about dying on Earth, and we're talking about destruction, uh, some... Uh, uh, you know, some really evil ideologies out there, and we want to get the, the heavy stuff out of the way before we turn to your lighter topic yeah, of science fiction. Yeah, you know, m- monsters and things that kill you from outer space are so easy going <laughs> compared to the stuff we have to face looking at politicians every day. Yeah. But before we get going, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ. 5130 kilohertz, and on channel 292 at 6070 kilohertz. And of course, as always, you can visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Robert? Well, like I say, Bob, before we get into your lighter topic of science fiction, I hey, have... Hey, it's not that light. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <I'm> just <kidding>. <laughs> I just have some observations to make about uh, May Day, which has come uh, and gone, um, but still deserves some comment, I think. It's we had still some... May. It's still May, yeah, but we had some guests on the show the last couple of weeks, so we didn't have the opportunity to get into it, but yeah. uh, I really want to talk about it because it's so important out there. 
Um, while many in Europe celebrate it, of course, as a spring festival, there are those who uh, observe it as International Workers' Day, a sort of European Labor Day. And of course, I say that because here in North America, we do not observe May Day as International Workers' Day. Instead, we have chosen the first Monday in September to observe labor. Oddly enough, by taking the day off work, the irony, of course, is intentional. It's the function of labor leaders to demand the most pay for the least amount of work, and they're thereby contradictorily laying claim to being the only class of people required for society to progress, essentially by doing as little as they can. Organized labor, in the sense that we think of uh, with regards to guilds and trade unions, is in point of fact not organized labor. It's organized force, as I think you've mentioned on the show before, Bob. The businessmen is yeah. actually the ones to truly organize labor. Correct. And it is yet the businessman who's the one vilified by the unions. You know, I mean, what do you mean of when you, when you organize labor? You have different trades, different skill sets, different occupations, and you bring them all together for one single purpose, to create a building, to manufacture something, to produce something. And that's the job of the businessman. He is the one organizing labor, not the trade union leader. Well, they're organizing their little labor monopolies. That's exactly what they're organizing, yes, force. But, but, uh, you know, I just had to say, you you talk about wanting to do as little as possible for the most amount of money. That's not in and of itself a bad thing. We all are a bit like that. No, but I'm saying that it's contradictory and hypocritical of them to say that here we are out there hardworking and yet all they try to do, (laughs) the raison d'etre of the labor union is to do as little as possible. You know, if they really wanted to celebrate work, they'd go out there and work on Labor Day. But no, that's not the case. Do some extra work for free, you know, for <laughs> charity yeah. or something. Yeah, to organize labor, the workers building the buildings. And it's not the landowner or the, the property developer, or the banker or the architect. You know, only labor deserves a day of rest, according to them, to celebrate what they see as their sole accomplishments. In socialism, the workers control the means of production but not the minds of production. To them, the minds of production are irrelevant in the scheme of things. That building just raises itself by the sweat of the brow off of workers and not, as I say before, the financiers and the businessmen, the entrepreneurs. And of course, those guys have no such day of rest, perhaps in part because they're constantly working, constantly working behind the scenes to create and to produce. I'd like to think that if there were such a thing as an International Businessman's Day, the businessmen would probably celebrate it by spending another couple of hours at the office, because they usually (laughs) put in their 60-hour work weeks. Now, consider the protagonist of Les Miserables. You ever read that novel, Bob, or see the play or movie? Seen the play, seen the movie, uh, read the novel years ago, so it's very not clear in my head, but mm. I'm always familiar with it when people bring it up. Yeah, well, of course, you may, might remember the uh, the protagonist, Jean Valjean. And Valjean was a laborer, turned criminal, turned inventor, and capitalist. He single-handedly turned his poor little town into a prosperous village, with Valjean funding hospitals, orphanages, and charities, and providing work for many of the townsfolk, lifting everyone's standard of living. Victor Hugo glorified Valjean as an entrepreneur and businessman and and acutely describes him as the one-man engine of the mind without whom the town would have remained impoverished. And perhaps the characterization of Valjean was one reason Hugo was admired by, of course, the uh, Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. Now, May Day was created, for a bit of history here, 
by the Second International, a group of socialists and labor parties, primarily in Europe. Notable among their later members was Vladimir Lenin, who led the Red Terror of 1918 and was responsible, along with his fellow Bolsheviks, for the death of as many as one and a half million people in that year, in the name of socialism. The I, guess they're, I guess they're just full of Bolsheviks. <laughs> <laughs> full of something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the deaths of tens of millions by execution and systematic starvation in the years following Lenin's uh, Red Terror were just more blood on the hands of the Marxists. Now, May Day was created to commemorate, ostensibly, Chicago's Haymarket Affair of 1886. Now, if you read anything about the Haymarket Affair, it'll undoubtedly be colored by the perspective of socialists. That May 4th, in 1886, saw a group of socialists. At the time, of course, they were labeled anarchists, because we really, at that time, hadn't had our terminology down, but the anarchists were the socialists of the day back then. And these anarchists, they murdered eight police officers and four civilians with a dynamite bomb. The police were trying to disperse a demonstration by workers, so-called, who were gathered in support of a general workers' strike for an eight-hour work day. The slogan for the strikers was, eight-hour day with no cut in pay. What did I say? Yeah. Again, typical of unions to glorify labor by demanding less of it, and for the same amount of pay, no less. Also leave it to the socialists to commemorate murder and bloodshed and to glorify it. American leftists consider the site of the Haymarket Affair an historic landmark, and a monument has been erected at the burial site of those hanged for conspiracy to commit those murders. Is there a monument to the slain police officers? No. Karl Marx believed that societies only progress through class struggle. Struggle, tension, violence is necessary, essential in Marxism. Conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat was essential in the mind of Marx for society to eliminate what he perceived to be the inequalities of capitalism. To a Karl Marx, a Vladimir Lenin, to those of the Second International, the Jean Valjeans of the world are unnecessary. For them it is only the hands which do the work, not the mind. I find it unfathomable and offensive that following the deaths, torture, and tragedy of millions of lives as a direct consequence of Karl Marx's ideology put into effect by the likes of Lenin and his thugs, that May Day or International Workers' Day is still celebrated and observed throughout Europe. I find it unbelievable, given the benefits of capitalism, we take for granted every day and the misery of socialism, the effects of which are still acutely felt in places like Venezuela, where people are actually hunting down their stray cats and dogs and eating them because they're starving under uh, uh, socialism. Yeah, they're just further down the path, and we are in North America. We're experiencing oh, yeah. it here now. We're and going there. We're going And there. Ontario is heading fast down that path. I mean, look at all these examples. I mean, it's unfathomable that anyone could say that labor is to be celebrated while the mind is not, that the virtues of the worker are to be extolled while the virtues of the men of the mind are not. Typically, any laborer, or essentially any day laborer, general laborer, they can be replaced. You know, for everyone out there, there's a, you know, there's a million of them. But the men of the mind are unique. They are individuals. The left of today talk of microaggressions, forgetting entirely the macroaggressions of the past done in the name of their philosophy, the millions who have died in the name of their philosophy. 
Who are the figureheads of socialism in the left? Lenin, the butcher of millions. Che Guevara, the homophobic racist executioner of Cuba, who delighted in overseeing the firing squad, where landowners who refused to relinquish their farms to his collective were shot, often with him delivering the coup de grace. And Mao Zedong of China, a man responsible for the deaths of between 18 and 45 million people through his Great Leap Forward campaign. Since it seems that the evidence of a century of misery under socialism is not persuasive enough for people to realize that the ideology of Marx was pure evil, there remains for some only ridicule. Good evening. Tonight is indeed a unique moment in the history of television. We are deeply privileged and honored to have with us in the studio tonight Karl Marx, the founder of modern socialism and author of the Communist Manifesto, Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov, better known to the world as Lenin, leader of the Russian Revolution, writer, statesman, and father of modern communism, Che Guevara, the Bolivian guerrilla leader, and Mao Zedong, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party since 1949. And the first question is for you, Karl Marx. The Hammers. The Hammers is the nickname of what English football team? No, a bad luck card. It is, in fact, West Ham United. <laughs> now, Che Guevara. Che. Coventry City last won the FA Cup in what year? <laughs> no, I'm going to throw the question open. Anyone else? Coventry City last won the FA Cup in what year? No, well, I'm not surprised you didn't get that. It is, in fact, a trick question. Coventry City have never won the FA Cup. <laughs> So now, with the scores all equal, it's on to round two, and Lenin, your starter for ten. Teddy Johnson and Pearl Carr won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1959. What was the name of their song? Teddy Johnson and Pearl Carr's winning song in the 1959 Eurovision Song Contest. No? Yes, Marte Tung. Birdie. Yes, it was indeed well challenged. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we come on to our special gift section. Our contestant tonight is Karl Marx, and our prize is this beautiful lounge suite. Now, Carl has elected to answer questions on workers' control of factories. So, here we go with question number one. You nervous, Carl? Brave man. Here we go, Carl. The development of the industrial proletariat is conditioned by what other development? The development of the industrial bourgeoisie. Good. Yes, it is indeed. Well done, Carl. You're only waiting a lounge suite. Here's question number two, Carl. The struggle of class against class is a what struggle? A what struggle? A political struggle. Good, yes it is indeed. Well done, Carl. One final question and that beautiful lounge suite will be yours. Are you going to try? Brave man. So Karl Marx, here's your final question. Who won the cup final in 1949? 
the, the workers control the means of production. The, the struggle of the urban proletariat. No, uh, it was Wolverhampton Wanderers who beat Leicester 3-1. Oh, shit. <laughs> You know, Bob, we can make fun of socialism and Karl Marx and Lenin and Mao, but, you know, it's no real laughing matter. Socialism a system, is a system of creating barriers between people. It's a system of creating and perpetuating the class struggles of Marx. And if these classes no longer exist, it's socialism's goal to create them. Isn't that interesting that you say that it creates barriers, <laughs> which is exactly the thing you'd think a class struggle would fight to eliminate. It's an us versus them, and yeah. it's essential for their ideology to work. Of course. There has to be violence for it to work. Capitalism is the barrier destroyer. That's why they're busy destroying capitalism. You yeah. Know. In effect, it's sort of the uh, great equalizer, isn't it? It's the Always. Uh, yeah. For Marx, though, it was uh, the class of the workers against uh, that of the industrialists, if you're thinking back in his day. In today's mixed economy of socialism and capitalism, this distinction is rather tenuous, if you ask me. The wealthy industrialists of today could very, very well have been the poor student or blue-collar worker of yesterday. In today's mixed economy, individuals rise and fall and move about these so-called class structures, thanks only, by the way, to capitalism, to freedom. So with this distinction of labor and business, the poor and wealthy being blurred, the Marxists have to devise other false classifications of individuals to keep us at each other's throats. Hmm. Women versus men, for one. In fact, International Women's Day was also created by the Second International. Today, though, the lines between who is a woman and who is a man is also getting a little blurry for some. Consumers versus merchants. Now, that's a more modern and trendy way of saying the struggling proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. Gay versus straight, although that distinction is not enough for some. Now we have the so-called LGBTQ, if I have those numbers or those letters correct, against those who aren't LGBTQ. The new Marxists keep adding letters to the sexual preference distinctions until the lines of sexual preference and deviance from the norm are becoming so vague and unintelligible as to be meaningless to the vast majority of us who don't fit into the Marxist little sexual boxes. I don't see a H there for the heterosexual. Are you, Bob? No. Nope. Part of the class struggle. Well, of course not. I mean, the heterosexual, <laughs> of course, is the vast majority of people, and the majority are wrong for, uh, for Marxists. Another distinction, black versus white. You know, I thought, you know, back in the 60s, we were watching uh, shows like All in the Family, and I thought for sure that the fun they were poking at the racism in the United States would surely deflate that evil balloon. Mm -hmm. Nope, not the case. The most racist president in history of the United States has destroyed a 100 years of tenuous healing. For Marxism to survive... There must be class struggle, and where these distinctions are only skin deep, you make the most of it. And Barack Obama has done a bang-up job of rekindling old hatreds and perpetuating racism in America. Marxist that he is. Climate change proponents versus climate change deniers. One of the more shrill cries from the left pits eco-terrorists like Al Gore, David Suzuki, and every left-wing politician against the majority of us who don't buy into their crackerjack science. But the final distinction is comrades versus individuals. You're either with the collective or you're the enemy of the collective. 
Marx was correct in that there are struggles in society, but they don't advance society. They destroy it. The real struggle is the left against reality. The collectivization of people into groups, classes, herds, categories, strata, and castes is the Marxist attempt to destroy the very concept of the individual. I'm reminded of the much ridiculed, and rightly so, pickup line, um, what sign are you? Are you an Aries or a Pisces? For some, it's necessary to group and to classify people so that we can conveniently and lazily think of them as possessing all the approved characteristics of that group or class, and thereby dismiss any unique characteristics of the individual. Marxists are masters at destroying the concept of the individual. They are struggling against the very nature of man with those contrived collectives. That nature being that man is an end to himself. He's not the means to some other person's end. And at the risk of appearing antisocial or unmutual, I'd say that a person's life is their own to live and not some left-wing ideologue's pawn in a chess game of power, control, and self-loathing. Um, anything else to say on that? No, like I say, Bob, I'm looking forward to what you have to say about science fiction. Let's, let's okay. uh, lighten it up a bit. Well, when we return, we will go where perhaps many have gone before and perhaps uh, should go once again. We'll return after this. Yeah, served her and her date in a private room. Looked pretty cozy, but uh, later she was alone at the bar crying her eyes out. This date of hers, can you describe it? Sure can. Look like that. A creeper? A hoop? evil alien race from Nebula 9. Nasty creatures. They'll eat your face off when you're still alive and then serve your organs to their young. Good to know. Is that all? I want these purple VIP badges. Pretty exclusive. Can't be more than a few hundred of them. This is like the Halloween from hell. Oh, yeah, this is probably too lowbrow for you, huh? You're probably into that boring-ass intellectual kind of sci-fi, like Gattaca. Or 2001. The monolith? What the hell was that? Don't ask me. No, no, swords and sorcery, that's more my thing. Like, uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I could probably see you as an elf. Or a hobbit. Dr. Chapman. Could an airplane melt that much ice? One of our own jets generates enough heat to warm a 50-story office building. Barnes, bring some tools! Hey, it's down pretty deep over here. I can't see anything but a dark mass. Steeper over here. Captain, may I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape? Right. Spread out, everybody. We're going to try to figure out the shape of this thing. Holy cats. Hey, it's almost... Yeah, almost a perfect... It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. Can anybody see anything through the ice from where you are? Only an outline. Nothing but a dark shape there. Seems perfectly smooth. No doors or windows. I can't see any engine. I doubt if we find anything we call an engine. Dr. Carrington, this isn't any metal I know. Probably some new alloy. Get some filings for analysis. Right. Captain, 
I don't think we have a chance of chopping through the ice with axes. I know, Doctor. We think so, too. We're going to try to melt it out with thermite bombs. Oh, excellent. Doctor, where do you figure it's from? I don't know, Mr. Scott. Well, from this planet? I doubt it. Well, then, do you think that the answers to your questions will be much easier after we've examined the interior of the aircraft? Its occupants, if there are any. Occupants? Why never? What a story! Where's every... Hey, Barnes! Hold it, Scott. Sorry, no private messages. What do you mean, private? I'm going to send it to the whole world. I wish you could, but this is Air Force information. We'll have to wait for authority to let you file a story. Why, you've got your authority in the Constitution of the United States. For your information, it's called freedom of the press, and I'm sending a story, Captain. That's our ship, Scotty. Where do you want these bombs, sir? One over there by Look, the stabilizer, Pat. another one over in the far side in case we need it. Pat, this is the biggest story since the parting of the Red Sea. You can't cover it up. Think what it means to the world. I'm not working for the world, Scott. I'm working for the airport. Look, Sonny, if you no, think Scott. I'm going to... I'll take that. Here's a death. Oh, even the Russians wouldn't like that. I get back to the ship and call the camp. Tabtex Radio Fogarty, we found a flying saucer, disc, whatever you call it, intact, embedded in the ice. We're going to try to get it out. What yes. about also me? Also ask if Scott can have clearance to send a story. Yes, sir. That's all I can do for you, sir. Don't apologize. You're just going to grow up to be another Fogarty. Where are we going to touch this thing on? Over there. Have you looked toward the west lately? That front's moving fast and the temperature's dropping, too. Yeah, we don't have more than an hour. Well, that was from one of my most favorite science fiction movies of all, Robert, believe it or not. Not just of a particular era. It's called The Thing from Another World. I'll have more to say about that later in the show. But if an evil alien race from Nebula 9 is too lowbrow science fiction for you, or boring-ass intellectual sci-fi like Gattaca in 2001 is too highbrow for you, here's an option that some of you might find is just right. Something from the Arts and Entertainment Department. Uh, you know, the last time I gave any TV or entertainment recommendations on the show, Robert, it was to recommend the current series Black Sales, if you remember. But today I'm going to recommend a few options that are definitely not in the genre of Black Sales, which is about as high quality entertainment as it gets, and which shares that quality with a thankfully growing number of current productions. No, today I'll be looking at, for the most part, the relatively low end of the production scale. Some of the science fiction films made in the 1950s and 60s. And of course, as regular and long-time listeners to this show are already well aware, among the audio bites we use for our bumper breaks, we have no fear of using excerpts taken from science fiction and fantasy shows. There was a time, you know, when doing such a thing, referring to sci-fi sources to illustrate something, uh, might have been considered embarrassing or socially, <laughs> uh, you know, not quite right in terms of appreciation of literature. Kind of on the lowbrow end of things. I think science fiction never did have a good reputation from the beginning. Well, I remember growing up in the 60s, and I knew that you grew up in the 50s, that even in the 60s, it was thought of as rather um, childish. Oh, yes. And it had not come into its own as a uh, literary form or a, an entertainment form oh. until, I think, Star Wars. Well, or 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, I would have said time. Star Trek broke broke the television barrier. Oh, and t TV for sure. Yeah. I was, my mind was more on the on movies. movies. Yeah, yeah but, of but Star Trek, oh yeah, mm. the writing was superb. But even up till then, all you got was westerns and law shows and detectives and well, cops they, and robbers. Gene Roddenberry even great. had to pitch Star Trek yeah. as a wagon right. train to the stars. Exactly. <laughs> Now, of course, we use these sometimes unbelievable and unprecedented in human experience selections to help illustrate some very real issues we face here on Earth today, not on some distant planet in the future, in a way that hopefully allows our minds to focus on the essentials of a particular message or moral principle. And, of course, humor, drama, commentary, and stand-up can offer similar reflections. But science fiction can actually employ all of those elements, while still managing to do one thing that the rest cannot. 
and that's to eliminate or isolate some element of reality on a level that could conceivably actually be something close to the truth in some distant future. We've often, for example, cited the lack of science fiction to predict uh, smartphone technology, to predict um, the internet. If you go back far enough, you won't see any hints of these except in the most rare of instances. Any global computerization yeah. of the world was always thought of as a single intelligence, right. never the internet. No. And so in some contexts, we have totally surpassed any fantasy expectations of the past. Uh, the other thing that makes science fiction different from the rest is that it's among the most recent accepted forms of art and literature to have joined humanity's legitimate official archive of, of a record of human experience. There have always been fairy tales, of course, and outright fantasies, often based on religious or mystical assumptions. But the reason we never had science fiction until quite recently in our history is because, well, first we had to have science <laughs> <laughs> as an accepted authority of our actions, rationally and morally. That's what changed. It, it was no longer God and, and faith. It became science. I mean, that struggle between science and religion changed the whole nature of mankind and hence was born science fiction. And in this regard, an interesting item in the National Post caught my attention just this past April 18. Calling him the man who lost the future, National Post writer Scott Van Winsburg had a piece published on April 18th that was less about science fiction itself than it was about a fellow named Hugo Gernsback. A name ring, ring a bell with you? Uh, only because you did mention yeah. him to okay. me a couple of weeks ago. Well, he credits him as having played a major part in bringing science fiction magazines to America. In, uh, first, uh, apparently he was born in Luxembourg in 1884. Gernsback was the son of a vintner who was apparently prosperous enough to indulge his son's growing passion for gadgetry. Now, apparently his interest in gadgetry and technology led to a further interest in science and his education at the École Industrielle in Luxembourg and an institute called Technicum in Bingen, Germany, an institution that attracted visionary oddballs. Gernsback emigrated to the U.S. in 1904, quote, just in time to exploit the radio revolution started by Italian inventor Marconi. Indeed, Marconi's biographer, Gavin Waitman, credits Gernsback, not Marconi, with the insight that the average person might want to tinker with radio technology. Interesting, the, the play back and forth. Gernsback started a magazine called Modern Electrics in 1908, to be followed by his entry to science fiction in 1911 when he serialized a sci-fi story within the pages of that magazine. And then the magazine later came to be called Science and Invention, in which he increasingly experimented with sci-fi, including reprinting tales from the likes of H.G. Wells. Okay, so you get some big names in there. And here's an interesting twist for his time that relates to our social media age. Quote, Gernsback also cultivated fans. For the letters page of Amazing, he printed addresses in full, allowing readers to contact each other and create elaborate networks, end quote. Practically creating a non-technological internet culture in his time, in a way. Something sci-fi writers themselves never came up, again, in the sense that we were talking about earlier. But to make a long story short, apparently Gernsback had a checkered business history, can, shall we say, <laughs> ending up in legal problems and business failures, including a radio station, WRNY, that he started in 1925, and other strange enterprises, including a magazine called Sexology in 1933, which ran for years. I remember seeing that one on the stands. 
and uh, he was would, it in a plastic wrapper? It's probably in that section <laughs> up at the top. But he would correspond <laughs> with sex uh, scholar Alfred, uh, um, Alfred Kinsey, you know, mm, and that was when all yeah. that stuff came out. And apparently, at the same time, he would start printing stories about alien abductions and things in the same magazine, right? And quote, he writes, uh, officially the science fiction community honored Gerns back to the end of his days handing out Oscar-like Hugo Awards beginning in the 1950s. Unofficially, all was not well. By the time of his death in 1967, quote, science fiction pundits were debating whether or not he had created a ghetto for hack writers. In 1977, Sam Lundwall thundered that Gerns back had ruthlessly murdered American science fiction. In 1986, Brian Aldiss called him one of the worst disasters in the field's history. In 1997, David G. Hartwell scorned him as a, quote, anti-modernist, end quote. So the National Post article concludes by describing its author, Scott Vans Winsberg, as a resident of Winnipeg, anxious about what is to come, end quote. So here you have a guy who was... Uh, who got a real bad reputation from his fellow science fiction writers once he left the scene. I don't think it's deserved. I think uh, the history of science fiction being accepted by the general public had to play out the way it did. And he was essential to that um, historical well, sure. development. And he took a lot of chances, spread himself thin, and perhaps was a little wacky, but that's what happens, you know. Mm. And I've often wondered, perhaps a bit of anxiety, as they were talking about, um, and certainly curiosity about what is to come is part of the root attraction of science fiction, especially for those who take a long-term view of humanity's uh, future. So I thought I'd take a few minutes to share with our listeners and with you, Robert, some of my favorite sci-fi movie, movies of the era circa 1950, roughly, to 1965. That's about as far as I stretched it, give or take, with one or two exceptions. And I will make no pretense that these movies have production values or special effects we take so much for granted today. Some of them are simply terrible to watch in terms of those elements. Although that can be part of the attraction, and I found that amazingly attracting when I, when I saw, saw, saw some of them. But there's usually something else in those films that the silliness that ultimately sustains the popularity of so many of these offerings um, that, that keeps them going. And, they, and you know what it was? I think they actually had stories with plots and themes. Yeah, that's essential. And Without and, that, you have nothing. But that's where a lot of sci-fi today has gone, you know? Mm -hmm. So with the near infinity... Sorry. You, know, you just mentioned that that's mm -hmm. where sci-fi of today has come. I just Not recently watched, I think two or three days ago, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Boring. Absolutely boring. There was no real story to think of, no characterization, no protagonist that you cared about. Um, nothing uh, that captured your imagination, no dialogue. It was nothing like a forbidden planet from 50 years prior, which is a classic. This, this Fury Road, this Mad Max, is forgettable. And that's what, you know, I, I wrote down a, a quote that, um, I mentioned that on Facebook to some of my friends, and uh -huh. a guy came back and he said, actually a mutual friend of ours, Mike, um, he said, Hollywood can't tell stories anymore. It's just computer-generated tedium. They have to make all these dumb superhero movies about saving the world because nobody remembers how to create recognizably human characters with believable real-world motivations. And he's absolutely correct. Yeah, I think, I think that part of what I'm doing now came to a, a certain discovery that, that parallels that. You know, I've, I've got a collection of what I call my schlocky 50s sci-fi movies, okay? 
some with production values that I admit any homemade film today could easily surpass, okay? <laughs> a couple months ago, I piled a bunch of them onto a 16-gig flash drive just to let them run on my TV set in the background while I was doing some work-oriented projects, and I figured, well, these wouldn't distract me so much. And uh, it, it, they're always great to watch while you're waiting for some rendering to do on your computer or something like that. Now, I have to admit, I found myself questioning, why do I have these movies? Why did I even bother to keep them, let alone expect to watch them again? Well, now I was reminded. I was pleasantly surprised. And a lot of them were actually good enough to distract me from my work, damn it. <laughs> I didn't get a lot of stuff done. And I felt a bit more justified for having kept them in my collection. And I have to admit off the bat, a few of them are among my all-time classic favorites. And I know I will watch them whenever the mood takes me there because I always enjoy the experience. Among them, of course, shows like War of the Worlds with Gene Barry. Or The Thing from Another World, which I'll mention again briefly a little later. The one I, I, I was amazed that you hadn't heard that yet. No. But the one I want to take a look at first as we go into our next bumper break is... Um, Believe it or not, it's got the wildest title, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, which was made in 1958, starring Tom Tryon and Gloria Talbot. And I checked out Leonard Malton's 2005 movie guide, and he wrote, quote, One of the silliest titles in film history obscures a pretty good rehash of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Talbot notices that husband Tryon, as well as some of his friends, has been behaving very peculiarly of late, some nice, creepy moments in a chiller which has, a slow, ha, which has slowly developed a cult following, end quote. And I thought that was a great synopsis. I kind of agree with them. But it's what didn't happen in this movie that made it stand out for me among the genre of movies one might otherwise associate with a title like that. The movie's title is, in fact, maybe the most attention-getting element of the movie and was maybe necessary because this is a sci-fi film that worked more on understatement rather than an overstatement or wild sci-fi indulgence. The story had a reality about it that was, it was hard to miss. And it was filmed in black and white, which completely suited the tone and the feel of the movie. Although the movie did have its obligatory monster scenes in terms of allowing us to see what the aliens really looked like when they weren't in human form, those scenes were minimal. One thing, of course, is always terrible relative to today's special effects was the costuming of monster makeups and stuff. I always think of Lost in Space. When I, when oh, I think, yeah, a lot of them are in that genre. Yeah, so bad, eh? Not in this one, but, but a lot of them. However, good and serious actors give performances that cut through any easy dismissal on the part of the viewer of the fantasy in which it is all happening. You become very willing to suspend your disbelief. I Married a Monster from Outer, Outer Space was one of those movies. I know it's got a wild title. You haven't seen it yet, I take it. No. Um, so much schlock, so little well, time. Well, I understand. So I'm hoping to filter a little bit of it out. Here we have the story of a newly married wife who, after more than a year of living with her husband, who always looks quite human, by the way, actor Tom Tryon, comes to realize that he's not only changed, but has actually and literally been taken over by an alien species. And of course, she's unable to get anyone to believe her. Classic drama and suspense in the old-fashioned sense of theater. In the following scene, we find the wife, actress Gloria Talbot, sitting alone in the dark on the sofa in the living room of her home. She's in a quiet and restrained state of panic 
contemplating the seriousness of her situation and what she might be able to do about it. I'm telling you, Robert, the look on, on her face, the look of fear was palpable. So given what you now know, let's listen in to a conversation that I'm pretty sure most of you would not expect from a 1950s sci-fi thriller called I Married a Monster from Outer Space. How about some light? You don't need any. Don't be too sure. Why not? Or is there still something I don't know? What do you know? I know you're not Bill. You're some thing that crept into Bill's body. Something that can't even breathe the same air we do. Sam died because oxygen was forced into his lungs. Aren't you afraid to be telling me all this? Yes. Does frightening women make you proud? Or is pride something monsters don't understand? We understand pride. But we can't afford it. It was something else that drove us halfway across the universe. We come from a planet in the Andromeda constellation. Our sun became unstable, so we built some spaceships. Enough to carry all our people safely away before our sun exploded. But it took time to build those ships. And in that time, as our sun's rays became more intense, our women died. But we went on anyway, a race doomed to extinction. Why did you have to come here? You have no idea how rare life is in those cold, countless miles of space. Did you love your women before they died? Love? No, we came together for breeding purposes only. That's why it's taken me so long to understand. Understand what? Something happened that we hadn't foreseen. Along with these bodies, we inherited other things as well. Human desires, emotions. Are you telling me you're learning how to love? I'm telling you I'm learning what love is. You? I wish you hadn't found out. Your race has no women. It can't have children. It will die out. Eventually, we'll have children with you. What kind of children? Our kind. Our kind, boy, a chilling thought. 
and one not so unlike the thoughts running through the minds of many concerned with the clash of cultures being experienced today in the form of the assimilation of one by the other. Isn't that a constant theme of fear that we see in the collective, if you want to look at it that way? By the end of that movie, the viewer actually comes to sympathize with the alien that takes over the husband's body, which I thought gave the story yet another dimension. I Married a Monster from Outer Space was a story about aliens coming to our planet. Of course, a lot of science fiction concerns mankind reaching out to space and going the other way and meeting life in outer space. And I just had to make a comment here because I ran across this bizarre article. You know, Robert, we live in an age of simultaneous skepticism and blind belief at the same time. Have you noticed that? And, yes, and, <laughs> and, there, and, and of course, we've talked about this before, the people that don't believe that man actually walked on the moon. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently... The ombudsman of CBC Radio Canada, the French version, had to uh, confirm that man really did walk on the moon. This was from an April 19th article in the National Post. They got a complaint from one of their listeners, Radio Canada ombudsman Guy Gedron, was forced to remind everyone after a viewer complained that their website repeatedly referred to the remarkable feat of man's landing on the moon as a fact. Even though you can shoot lasers at the moon and time their return to prove there are objects up there that we left, the conspiracy theories persist. One such adherent to the conspiracy, a fellow named Sylvain Pimper, took his concerns to the ombudsman, and his, his letter included links to a YouTube video that purportedly debunked the 1969 moon landing and argued that because stars are made of nuclear material and there's so much radiation in space, Neil Armstrong and the gang couldn't possibly have landed on the lunar surface. Isn't it odd that they would take the science of that? Right, and uh, apply to, it yeah, to against apply the to science it. of... Yeah. Right. (laughs) And of course, in response, Pierre Champeau, head of the digital content on Radio Canada, said, quote, the global scientific consensus is that American astronauts have actually walked on our planet's only natural uh, satellite. We are aware of a lot of theories about the moon landings circulating, as they do about September 11th, global warming, and Elvis Presley's death, etc., right? But that wasn't enough for this guy who apparently sent back and forced the radio station to to go through this whole YouTube video because he said, here we have contrary evidence, and apparently they have rules that they have to investigate it when somebody says that. So anyways, uh, the the ombudsman watched the whole movie and finally wrote, he said, if Mr. Pimpera had taken the trouble to finish watching the movie to the end, which apparently ran three hours, 39 minutes... (laughs) Uh, He said he would have found an explicit refutation of the very theory that they were talking about right at the end of the film. (laughs) He says, I do not think I need to elaborate further, which explains why you should always stay tuned to the end of the show. But, you know, I was unaware that we needed a global scientific consensus to determine a fact of history. One would think that the historical record and the observations of millions, not just one, but several trips to the moon and back... Uh, both manned and unmanned would be enough proof to demonstrate a truth. But no, we've got to have scientists of today have a consensus. What does that sound like? Global warming, maybe? And of course, there are a lot of um, rendition of man's first trip to the moon to be found in science fiction. And for the most part, part they were uh, very much on target with respect to the moonscape shots, certain issues about gravity and acceleration and weightlessness in space. I was I was impressed with some of the early movies. They looked like... And maybe that's why people think they're fake, the later ones, because they look so much alike. 
All right. How, oh, that looks awfully familiar. How did they know it would look like that? Well, because we've been looking. I don't think you'd find too much in, in the line of finding moon maidens and Venetian god goddesses and all-female planets in desperate need of ships of explorers of men to discover them and save them from something or other. Amazing how many of those movies there were. Or worse, a planet inhabited by feminists, which was not so uncommon a theme of some of the science fiction movies. Now, a lot of the movies I happened to have were from a 12-DVD-disc 50-movie pack of uh, science fiction classic. I, I was given it as a gift. And so I've got a whole smattering of some of them here. I'll try and get to as many as I can in the few minutes we've got left. I don't know if you've ever seen 12 to the Moon. Yes. Oh, you saw that one. That's a United Nations project yeah. or something, wasn't uh, it? Uh, right. It, it, uh, what, what's his name? Um, oh, no, this is from Roger's Video Movie Guide. Uh, they called it an ambitious failure. A turkey got a turkey rating. And of course, the 12 were each representative of the major world nations in 1960, the year the film was made, and was really an attempt uh, to either reconcile or divide people. I don't know, but uh, clearly they wanted to make anything to do with space exploration an international effort. It was something that had to be done collectively. Uh, another one that was really weird is called Cat Women on the Moon, made in 1954. Again, a turkey rating from the 1999 video movie guide. Quote, another ludicrous entry in the travel to a planet of barely dressed women subgenre, end quote. Well, whoever reviewed this for the movie guide, I don't think they watched it. They read the title of the movie and handed in their review, and that was it. I, I wouldn't doubt it, you know. I double-checked it to make sure we were talking about the same movie and can attest there were no barely-dressed women in this film. <laughs> Unless you consider a costume like something that Seven of Nine would have worn on Voyager, but all in black. And whoever thought this was being barely-dressed was obviously distracted enough to miss the plot, which the movie did have. It was actually creepy in a sense. You know, although the Earth astronauts went to a planet that was populated by women, they were all fully dressed, and, but they lived in a matriarchal society that hated men and from whom men on board the ship had to defend themselves. Their one sole Earth female astronaut who was with them and who was dressed just like the rest of them is taken over by the alien women telepathically. And the story was quite an involved and complex one given the situation and certainly in contrast to the review in the movie guide. There was a, a running love interest and, and really it was quite mysterious. I was hooked by it right? And it started because here they are, they just leave the planet, they're saying, you know, they're, they're all saying, well, we're going to say goodbye to Earth, and they all give their final messages. And their one female astronaut member, she doesn't say that. She said, instead, she says, I'm coming, Alpha. And it sort of just makes you sit up and wonder, what the hell is she talking about? And everybody looks at her, who's she talking to? We don't realize till later in the movie, she's already telepathically connected to these women on this planet they're heading to, right? and is, is leading these men into this trap. So it, it's, it's much more of a complex thing than, than this would suggest. Have you ever heard of the horrors of Spider Island? I don't even know if I should mention this. It sounds familiar, but no, I don't think uh, I can recall that much. Well, you won't find it anywhere listed. Um, it, it stars Alex Darcy Barbara Valentine as Babs. <laughs> 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 and is distributed by Pacemaker Pictures, 1962. This was so bad, it was good. It was not neither of the guides I was using, and if I were to borrow from a previous reviewer, the one I just mentioned, another ludicrous entry in the travel to a planet of barely-dressed women, uh, I would have to agree on one level, but this is in reverse. No one left the planet. The barely-dressed women were all Earth girls. <laughs> 
And what was really ludicrous was the spider they ran into when they found themselves in this Gilligan's Island situation. One guy in a whole boat of semi-clad beautiful models. Oh, the horrors of Spider Island. <laughs> I think it was Italian. There was, no, there was no year on the movie, nothing. The only way I even knew anything was from the DVD jacket. And it reads, an airplane en route to Singapore carries with it a group of female dancers and their manager, but unfortunately they crash land in the ocean somewhere in the South Pacific. Having survived the crash, the dancers and their manager make their way to an uncharted island where they set up residence and spend their days lounging around and skinny dipping. <laughs> when the manager is bitten by a strange spider, he's transformed into a spider-like man-beast and begins stalking the dancers. <laughs> I'll tell you, so bad it was good. Sometimes you, you watch a, you're watching a train crash. I think I'd rather watch that than Mad Max Fury Road. I think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it a lot more, too. Now, of course, one of the ones I wanted to make sure that I got in, uh, you said it was one we came out of at the break, and that was The Thing from Another World. Robert, this is one of my all-time favorite science fiction films. I kid you not. If you haven't seen it, you've got to watch it. It's a masterpiece from beginning to end, fully adult. Um, perhaps one of the most realistic and not-so-unbelievable first encounters with an alien life form. Excellently scripted and performed. I doubt that there were any movies of this kind on this theme in the entire era. And, you know, given Stephen Hawking's recent cryptic warnings about our possible first encounters with alien life, this one sure fit the bill. By the way, Peter Graves started, oh, starred yes. as the alien. We never see him. And again, another semi-not-so-hot costume, but irrelevant to, to the story. The thing from another world, um, the style of direction and the way the subject matter was treated was about as realistic as you're ever going to get. The whole thing was just pure realism from, from front to end. It got a, only a 3.5 uh, star rating from Leonard Malton out of five, I think. He notes that the original black and white, quote, classic blend of science fiction and horror, end quote, was later computer enhanced with a color version. I think personally I would prefer the black and white, but I know some people can't hack the black and white issue. So you might want to check out the color version. Well worth the thing. This is a movie I could watch anytime. One of those kind of movies. Great ending, great story. The film was finally remade, very well done. Not quite the same feel to it though, with Kurt Russell in 2008. And it's one of the few remakes that I kind of think lived up to the original, but it was a little off, you know, they changed the story a little bit. And um, I guess I'd better uh, wrap up with a couple others. Um, any, any that you can think of off the top of your head that you would recommend? I've seen Peter Graves in so many of those mm -hmm. black and white early sci-fis. You know, there are some gems out there, but no, I'm, I have more of my head in the, in the present when it comes to sci-fi, looking for the next gem. Right. By the way, one that I have to look up, I haven't found it yet, Invaders from Mars. I only have a 1986 remake of that movie with Karen Black, which was an excellent story, by the way. It's told from a child's point of view, hmm. who sees aliens land. Appar yes, I, I remember that one. They land over the hill, right? Yes. Yes. But apparently, get this, I just discovered this yesterday. That movie was a remake of a 1953 movie of the same title, Invaders from Mars, and apparently it came out with two different endings. And it depends whether you have the British ending or the American ending. The, and, and that was the first thing that always stunned me about that movie. They could have changed the ending a couple of times. I didn't, you know, I don't want to give away, uh, you know, a spoiler on that, but you could see the ending going two or three different ways. 
And apparently they actually did that. So I'm wondering, ah, it wasn't just my observation that was actually done that way. Another one, I guess we'll have to just finish off with a couple quick ones. Uh, the Wild Wild Planet, made in 1965 by uh, Italian uh, producers. Uh, female alien uses robots to gain control of Earth scientists by shrinking them. Fairly good ending, does not redeem lackluster film, wrote Leonard Malton. But that wasn't even the plot. That was just the description of the alien invaders. The real story was about the relationship between the leading characters. I found this to be Italy's contribution to the Star Trek phenomenon. I felt the show was much more adult. I think that's why he thought it was a little lackluster. It was more adult conversations. I remember actually not just Italy getting involved in the early sci-fi, but Russia had some good... Um, black and white old sci-fi back from the 50s as well. How interesting you should say that because I was going to go to something else but now I'll mention this one. Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. Oh. Okay, 1968 starring Mamie Van Doren. Uh, what I didn't know about this was uh, it was kind of a terrible movie but something about it attracted me and I couldn't figure out what. And then I read this review. Quote, Astronauts land on Venus and kill the creature worshipped by the planet's gill women. It was actually a 1962 Russian picture, Planet of Storms, framed with new footage conceived and narrated by director Peter Bogdanovich in 1966. Still an awful entry, but of definite curio interest to film buffs, he writes, and it was. It was kind, mm. of, kind of cool. So those are just a few of my uh, recommendations, and I guess the last one we'll go out with is A Visit to a Small Planet made in 1960, starring of all people, Jerry Lewis. Okay, <laughs> And I'm not usually a fan of Jerry Lewis movies, but this one seemed to work for me. This one actually was a lot about skepticism versus belief on the UFO front. It's a comedy, of course, all, and, and it was all about skepticism, true believers, sex, and even beatniks to boot. It is, after all, Jerry Lewis. Occasionally, a few words of wisdom. Uh, our closer for today's show is from that film, and that's coming up in just a few moments. So that's my visit through a small selection of really lowbrow sci-fi. I think that's worth a look. Don't be surprised if some of them show up in our selection of audio bites that we'll be using for the show in the future from time to time. So if you ever find yourself anxious about what is to come, you may find that some of my 50 sci-fi drive-by recommendations may just help quell that anxiety especially when you consider that their predictions dared to look ahead as far as the 1970s and beyond. <laughs> right. But don't be anxious about what's to come when it has to do with Just Right, because next week, as always, we will be continuing our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Hey, Robert? Yes, you bet. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I was right! I was right! I was right! I, oh, good evening, Helen. Reba, I just received a flash from headquarters on the flying saucers. It's confirmed, Roger. Why, I even saw one with my own eyes as plain as day. There were machine guns sticking out of the side. And underneath it had a rack of bombs. And a tremendous cannon poking out of a pillbox on the top. Oh, oh, oh. How do you do? How do you do? Have we met? Not unless you've ever been to X-47. Well... Oh, this is Mr. Mayberry. He's host at the party tonight. Uh, oh. Nice costume. Right costume, wrong century. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get this, Rog. Get this. At 1800 this evening, an unidentified flying object was spotted high over the... Oh, Bob, you shouldn't read that in front of Roger. Remember, 
There ain't no such animal. No such animal as what, Mother? As visitors from beyond. Teensy-weensy little men with long green feelers like this. Oh, excuse me, Mrs. Spelding, but the long green feelers went out with the short red tails. <laughs> short red tails? <laughs> Stop, Reba, for heaven's sake! <laughs> short red tails! <laughs> That's a good one.